Welcome. I'm Jessica Tejan, and this is the Evolving to Exceptional podcast, where we talk about reaching peak performance in our workplaces, homes, and communities so that we can live our best life possible, an exceptional life. Welcome back to the Evolving to Exceptional podcast. We have a fantastic guest this week, Adrian Presnell. Adrienne has spent 20 years in the healthcare space. She started out as a bedside nurse and has worked her way through most departments or most groups within the nursing and healthcare space. And now she's really focused on the human experience in healthcare and how to really help that patient experience and colleague experience. And that's something that both Adrienne and I share a passion around, right, of wanting to help people experience their best life and live their best life. And that We've got to have our workplaces be a part of that if we want people to have that experience, if we want people to have that outcome. Adrian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what makes you passionate about what you do and what you what you really care about in terms of what it is that you do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jessica. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be on this podcast and have such an amazing conversation. So my name is Adrienne. I'm a nurse. And I started out as a nurse about 20 years ago. I actually graduated nursing school and started out at the bedside. I loved bedside nursing and got my neuroscience certification. Uh, eventually became a charge nurse and decided I really liked seeing that bigger picture and eventually graduated into a coordinator role and then ultimately a nurse manager role where I got to support the bedside nurses. I learned a ton in that role. Currently, I'm in a regional strategic position where I'm really focused on the human experience. And so that would be patient experience and also the experience of the people that take care of the patient. And it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting area because first patients are in such a vulnerable state when they're a part of our healthcare system. They often have so much stripped from them, literally clothing and belongings. But in a more psychological way, they're not able to make a lot of their own decisions. There's a lot of ambiguity around what their future looks like. And it's just very vulnerable. And it's a time where we have so much opportunity to make an impact in someone's life. And so there's so much meaning in that alone. But then we look at the caregivers that are the ones providing the support to the patient. And they need support too. And so I'm fascinated by the organizational structures that need to be in place, the process, the emotional support that needs to be present for both the caregivers and the patient, and how those dynamics interact. Very complex, but it's very interesting and it's very meaningful work. And I get very excited about it. I just love it. What do you think is the greatest challenge? around that human experience? What do you think tends to be something that, and maybe you can do it by patient and then by caregiver if it's different, that tends to be one of the most common challenges or struggles that comes up in terms of having that be a a positive or a 
a good experience for the people that are in those situations? Sure. So one challenge around the patient experience is developing trust and developing it quickly. We don't have a whole lot of time sometimes to develop a relationship between a patient and a physician, a patient and a nurse, a patient and a therapist, especially in a hospital setting. In a clinic setting, you may, after serial visits, start to get to know each other. But still, the snapshots in time may only be 20-minute segments, right, or 10-minute segments, or coming in and out of a room. And to develop a true trusting relationship where you understand the individual needs of a patient can be really challenging. And a lot of it has to do with the energy the caregiver brings into the room. It also has to do with how willing the patient is to share their information and trust someone else with their information and their care. And so it's very psychological. It's very artful. We work so much with science in healthcare, but this piece is much more of an art and requires practice. From a healthcare worker perspective, I think one of our biggest challenges is burnout. And the COVID pandemic certainly exacerbated all of the struggles that we already had in healthcare nationally, internationally. The COVID pandemic amplified those things. And now we're in a situation where about one out of every five healthcare workers have actually left the profession. And by 2030, we're looking at huge shortages with healthcare workers. And we need to really think about burnout in new and different ways because the stress of staffing isn't going to be getting any better. So you talked about a lot there and there's a lot I want to unpack with you and I want to walk through some of the different elements. I'm going to go back to the first thing that you talked about with the trust between the patient who's having that experience and the caregiver or and caregivers, right? Because often there's a nurse, there's also a technician, there's other people that come into play. And interestingly enough, I had a fairly recent, a few months ago experience, one where my, myself was in the hospital and then another where my grandmother was, was in the hospital. And so I got to see, as you were talking about that, I was reflecting or playing back the video in my mind of how that went. And the difference between one nurse and another nurse. And not necessarily that one was more qualified or more capable than the other, but in terms of their approach. And now with the, in the case of my grandmother, she is 93 years old, extremely combative, and doesn't like to be told what to do. And so she's a pretty challenging patient, to put it mildly. And it, I could really see the difference between, and as you were talking about that, a caregiver who who can come in and establish that rapport and that trust and where there may be either a disconnect because of the backgrounds of the two people or because of what's going on with either the patient or the caregiver that creates real conflict. And what's really scary about that and was in our situation was that nurses are in a position to make very significant decisions and important decisions about the care of their patients, about the people that they're taking care of. And so if they don't have that trust or that understanding, or they haven't developed or really understand what's going on with their patient, 
it can lead to pretty damaging or consequential decisions. So there's real Mm -hmm. significant, besides just whether the patient's happy or not, there's significant outcomes that can come out of that lack of trust. What work goes into, because you can't equip the patients, whatever the patient is, you're stuck with to have to deal with. So how do you equip the caregivers with the skill sets that they need to have to develop that trust or to create that experience for the patient? Yeah, great question. So our caregivers need to really know and feel like it's part of their job to connect with the patient and with family. And so that is leadership and that structure and laying out expectation. Now, the amazing thing about healthcare workers is that most of them, if you set them down and ask them why they became a doctor or a nurse or a respiratory therapist or a CNA, they will tell you a beautiful story about why they're in healthcare and what it means to them. The challenge is when I'm going to speak as a we, because because I'm I'm a healthcare worker too, and I can see myself in this situation, especially when I was a newer nurse. When you're on your shift and you're busy and you're distracted, it's hard to slow down enough to be fully present with another person and really understand the things that aren't being spoken out loud and see the things that tell you about the person that aren't overt. And so it's our job as leaders to really inspire that type of connection and to encourage it and to make sure that our caregivers know that it's expected and it's desired and it is part of their job. If they spend time at the bedside getting to know the daughter of a patient, that's not wasted time. That's not time they should be in the medical record or time they should be doing something else. That's valuable time. Because just like what you said, Jessica, understanding a patient's individual needs on a different level, right, than just what you would read in the chart can lead to so many positive outcomes. You'll know how to instruct them in their discharge teaching. You'll know about their family members and who to teach how to give Lovenox to. And so it's just really easy in the grind of things to deprioritize what feels like the soft skills. And it's the job of people like me and the leaders in healthcare to make sure that stays front of mind. I just think that's so powerful, but also so challenging to really help those individuals who are in that position with what they need to do in order to create that result or that outcome. And I know because you're a neuroscience person like I am, there are a lot of elements that come into play in terms of where our nervous system is, how we're operating that impact our ability to be present and connect with others. And I can see how nurses who are overworked, like they work very long hours, very long hours. My sister was also a pediatric intensive care nurse and you work long hours, you barely have any breaks. And then you're keeping track of medicines and patient needs and so many things. There's so many things going on all of the time. 
that creates a pretty stressed state to begin with, making it even more difficult, even for those that have passion and would normally want to connect to find the time or feel like they can connect. Yeah, that's so true. And then imagine being that person and going home at the end of the day and feeling like you didn't do what you think your life's calling is, is to make a difference. And instead you tasked all day long and you checked all the boxes, but you didn't make the connection. And so it's really no wonder that nationally healthcare workers are really struggling to even want to stay in healthcare. And so there's a lot of opportunity to bring in neuroscience and to bring in psychology and to see if there are new and different and innovative ways to help the caregivers because I did a little bit of looking up right before we are having our conversation and it looks like currently the most agreed on estimate of burnout rate within healthcare providers is still at about 50%. It's a little higher during the pandemic, but one out of every two, 50% of healthcare workers being burnt out, that's asinine. That's a big deal. And burnout has so many different components. There's this personal resilience type component. There's a workflow and workload component. There's an organizational climate and culture component. There's even, and we saw this really clearly during COVID, a community and societal type component with different impressions and stigmas and opinions. And so it's super complicated. Absolutely. And I think let's go there with burnout. I think often people underappreciate the seriousness of burnout. We almost say it, at least I did for many years, flippantly. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. so burnt out. But when someone is truly in burnout, they're truly in a crisis situation in terms of their health, their mental health, their physical health, their neurobiology, how they're performing, how they're showing up. It's a significant problem. And so if you're saying one in every two nurses is actively in burnout, then not only do you have a problem with future the filling of future positions and whether nurses stay in the profession, but you have a ton of potential risk because we know as people get into burnout, they disengage, they become less energized, less motivated, less interested, less proactive. And so that is going to have serious consequences in our healthcare system for the nurses and for the patients. What do you think is You've talked a little bit about it, but what do you think some of the biggest causes or maybe what are the causes that you see really attributing to such high rates of burnout in the profession? Yeah. So COVID, like I said, COVID exacerbated a lot of things and we're still reeling from it. We're not recovered as healthcare workers, as healthcare systems from COVID. And so there's still those kind of echoes in our mind around what we went through as far as trying to do the right thing. And it's still getting so, so criticized by what felt like everyone on the outside, although I know it wasn't everyone. When I think of burnout right now, we have a lot of change that's going on. And some of that has to do with needing to reimagine processes 
and care models to prepare for the future. And a change leadership and change transformation in and of itself is very stressful. And in healthcare, it's a very high-risk environment, right? Not only is there lots of regulation and lots of science, but we can't make mistakes in healthcare. These are life and death type of situations. Medications are a huge deal, treatments and procedures. And, and so there's a lot of stress to maintain almost a feeling of perfection as we take care of patients, not making mistakes. During patient care, when we're trying to get everything right, Healthcare workers are also dealing with a lot of their own emotion because they have patients that they're attached to that are very sick. They're seeing people come in and out. They may have had a patient pass away on their shift and they're trying to deal with that emotion while they walk into the next room of a patient that has no idea, you know, what just happened, but they need to put on a smiling face and say, how are you doing? How was your meal? And so it causes what we call a nursing moral distress. And that's when it's hard to know what the right thing to do is or the right way to feel because there's so many conflicting values that you're trying to integrate at once. And so that's another big piece of burnout for nurses. So that moral distress, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying by that or what that means. That is, that's occurring because they don't have the time to make sense of their emotions or to properly process and deal with the different emotions that they're experiencing in the situations? Is that part of what's leading to that distress or is there more to that? There's, that's part of it and there's more to it because you can make the time to reflect on things, but the moral distress and the definition is closer to knowing what you know, is right or ethical or moral, in your opinion, an external constraint preventing you from doing whatever that thing is. And so, for example, during the COVID pandemic, we had to restrict visitation in hospitals across the country. And it is, I can't express how difficult it is to tell a family member that they can't see their loved one or to tell a patient that they can't have the support of their family member but we knew it was for their safety and it was to prevent the pandemic spread. And it was an expectation across the country to do. And so there we have two different, we have an ethical dilemma. We have two different, we've got to protect the patient. We don't want them to get COVID, right? And we know the immense value of having a support system at your bedside. And so there's two conflicting things. Either way, we're going to feel bad about which one, which one we have to choose. Another example would be as a nurse, if my department needed me to come in because they were short-staffed and I knew that would be best for patient care and that I would be helping my colleagues, but I also know I really need time at home with my family. It's one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't situations. Yeah. And unless your head, unless you can get your head in a good place, you're going to feel bad with either decision, you choose your family and you're worried about what's going on at work or you choose work and now you feel guilty about your family. And then maybe one more example of moral distress would be a nurse that has a patient or a doctor or therapist that has a patient and they feel like they're doing treatments that are unnecessary 
but it's because the patient family who may be making all the medical decisions for the patient is insisting that we continue treatment. And that caregiver's own moral compass might be like, oh, I'd rather, I think we should leave them alone. I think we should let them rest. And yet we are also following the family's wishes. And so that's another area of moral distress. And so this has been part of nursing for a very long time. I think the term originated in the 1980s. But it's really been in the last several years as well that we've started talking about something called moral injury. And that is something related to the accumulation of moral distress. When you've had things like that happen over and over again, you start feeling guilty and you start being angry. And then that impacts your, your mental health significantly. So it's almost like it becomes a trauma for the people enduring it. Because it's repetitive, almost like an abusive relationship or something where you're having to be exposed to this painful situation or this painful, repetitively having to make these morally challenging decisions that is causing you distress. And so over time, that's actually building up into leaving a lasting trauma or injury for the recipient. Yeah. And you described that really well. And actually, the moral injury construct originated from the military in the 1990s when we had combat veterans coming back from war and they were showing symptoms of anger and guilt and shame, things that were really affecting their quality of life. But it wasn't consistent with PTSD because they weren't fear-based symptoms. Instead, they were very internalized guilt and anger. And it was in that, I want to say 2018, doctors Wendy Dean and Simon Talbot saw this military construct and thought, oh my goodness, there are so many parallels to medicine. And so that's when literature started showing up with moral injury relative to the healthcare space. And it's a really interesting rabbit trail to go down and start reading about that literature. And we're talking about healthcare, but moral distress and moral injury, this is something that you can see in all different kinds of industries, especially like human services stuff. Teachers, oh my gosh, you can think of what teachers need to deal with and social workers. I'd say our human resource professionals who have to deal with the wanting what's best for the employee, but having to make decisions in the interest of the organization or the workplace and layoffs and situations of discrimination or harassment, that becomes a real a similar type of situation. I found myself in those in the past myself. So yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. And so feeling the, all those feelings, in addition to working in a very complex environment, very high pressure environment, it's just putting people in a really rough place. And I don't know if you've read much. I'm just starting to read more about stress cycle and stress loops and whatnot. And I start to reflect on we're starting so many stress cycle during the course of like a healthcare worker shift. But how are we closing them? How are we closing them during the shift? And how are we closing them after the shift? And could that be one of the interventions that could be new for us and something worth trying in the future is closing stress loop in real time. So I love that for our listeners. So a stress loop is when somebody 
experiences some sort of intense stress. So in the past or olden days example, it's our nervous systems activated because we're going to be chased by a tiger or something. There's something in the wilderness that's chasing us. So we run away and the running away closes that stress loop for us. It allows our body to run off that energy, that stress in order to get away from that dangerous or challenging situation. The challenge, and this is one of the things I think is contributing to the high level of burnout, is in our current world, there are so many more instances of stress and our brains don't necessarily know the difference between the tiger in the room and the tiger on TV or the seeing the news stories about wars in other countries or mass shootings or the various things that show up. Those can cause stress cycles. Those can trigger, trigger that additional stress. And then when you add to it the day-to-day stressors, like you're talking about for nurses, now you've got stress cycles of interactions with patients, the stress of a patient who's maybe sick or even passed away. Those are now additional stress cycles. So you just keep opening them. And unless you do something to rebalance your nervous system and bring it back, close that stress loop and bring yourself back into a balanced state, that stress starts to accumulate in the body and add. And that is where you start to see the damages that come from long-term stress. And that's really part of what I think ultimately then leads to burnout. What's interesting about it is in my experience, so this is new for me, so I'll say this is new, but so I went through my burnout experience. It's taken me, I'm probably a year and a half out from it, but I'm still recovering from the impacts of that burnout. One of the things that I did about two months ago was start a nervous system balancing exercise. And I use a particular app called NeuroFit. And I use that app. And in three minutes, it gives you uh, an exercise for how to rebalance your nervous system based upon what state you're in. So whether you're in that sympathetic, I'm running away from the tiger state, whether you're in that I'm frozen, shut down, numbing out, watching social media, don't want to connect with any one state, whether you're in that state or whether you're in a balanced, open type of receiving state. So it helps you to shift and bring your nervous system back into balance. And what was interesting for me was that I went from getting sick very frequently to finally being able to stay healthy for longer periods of time, to not catching every single thing my three-year-old twins were bringing home. And what's really cool about that is it starts to bring you back. It closes that stress loop for you. It closes that that circle so that you can now be in a better state for whatever activity you're going to go engage in or do next. I'm curious what, if anything, is the healthcare industry doing around helping nurses or healthcare providers manage that stress, manage these challenges that they're under. And what, obviously, if you're in that industry, you maybe have more science background. I didn't. I'm a lawyer by trade. So I didn't know anything. They didn't teach us in law school about nervous system, although I wish that they had, because I might be a much healthier person today (laughs) if they had. But what are they doing for nurses? What are some of the things or healthcare providers in general that are to help them with that stress, to help alleviate some of the challenges with burnout. Yeah. So no healthcare system or hospital that I'm aware of, and I have 
looked all over the country for best practices, has this completely figured out. And that makes sense because we know that burnout's super multifactorial. And so it needs to be approached from a lot of different angles. One of the most important things that I have seen is normalizing the conversation. Now, healthcare workers suck it up and do their job. That's their MO is they do hard things and they do it well. And there's even that hero archetype that we see and we project on healthcare workers. And we saw that during the pandemic is that they're heroes and they certainly do heroic things. And it's a little hard to have a hero archetype projected on you when you're actually feeling really vulnerable and might need to ask for help. So normalizing the conversation around it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to tell your coworker or tell your manager that you're having a really hard time or that you might need a different assignment or you need to take a break for 15 minutes and can someone help cover your responsibilities? That's okay. It's not something to be ashamed of. And as a matter of fact, good on you for having the emotional awareness and the emotional intelligence to recognize that you need a break. And I feel like that is like our first step. And that's where we're at right now is just even getting this group of amazing, intelligent, caring people to be able to just stop for a minute and check in with their, themselves and be okay with wherever they're at and be okay with asking for help. Normalizing the conversation, socializing the definition of burnout, making it part of our vocabulary. It's not a dirty word. When we talk about burnout, we don't have to like lower our voices or only talk about it in certain meetings or certain. It's not. It is what it is. Whether we talk about it out loud or in a boardroom, it exists one way or the other. So we might as well take the cover off of it and look at it and acknowledge that it's there and let's do something about it. And even if we don't know what exactly the right thing is to do about it, let's try some stuff. Throw the spaghetti on the wall. What sticks? What does it? If it doesn't stick, we'll stop that. If it does, we'll keep doing it. Have you seen anything that has worked or hasn't worked? Have you been able to identify this definitely doesn't work, or this looks like it's promising, like this might work, this might make a difference. What are some of the things that fall into those categories? As far as what doesn't work, what definitely doesn't work is a leader or leadership telling healthcare workers to improve their own self-care and improve their resilience, and that alone is going to help them. And it's something that you can see online. There's some really popular like medical YouTubers that just have yes. gone on huge ramp about resilience and the word resilient. Burnout, is, there's many factors with burnout. Personal resilience and the ability to take care of yourself is a slice of that pie chart. Absolutely. But when the solution that's presented to healthcare workers from leadership is only that slice of the pie chart, and it's only you need to take better care of yourself. What I've heard and what I've read and what I've listened to on YouTube quite a bit is that feels like victim blaming. 
to healthcare workers is it's, if you want to feel better, you need to take better care of yourself. And so that is one recommendation of what not to do is simply focus on self-care and give advice to healthcare workers, but not show any actual effort to improve system or culture or climate. I think that is so powerful alone, because as somebody who was also in burnout, anytime people would say to me, just, you just got to take care of yourself better. And I'm getting sick every month, at least once a month. And just take, you just got to, you just got to take care of yourself better. And you got to believe when somebody's in that state, they're already trying to do just about right. everything that they can do to be better. And so if they could, if they knew how, they would mm -hmm. be doing it, right? Yes. It's the epitome of, I don't think you're smart enough to be doing the things that you should be doing. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you that you should do them instead of offering a tangible solution. And one of the things I would just love in response to that is for somebody to say, great, how are you going to help me do that? Yeah. You are my leader. How are you going to help me have better self-care? What are you going to do? Are you going to add time? Are you going to add resources? Are you going to give me tools that are going to help me to be able to do that? What is the reverse of how that becomes a shared responsibility rather than a one-way request. Yeah, excellent point. When I was really thinking about resilience and self-care, one of the things I thought about was like new mothers and that are struggling, right, to take care of themselves and to take care of the babies and to work or even just take care of the house. Forget about work, all of that kind of stuff. And if they were to say, I am drowning, like I am really struggling. Could you even imagine someone coming to them and say, you really need to prioritize eating lunch. Like for that to be the solution was someone just truly saying, I need help. I can't handle this. So we don't really do that to people in other aspects of life. But when it's a workplace situation, for some reason, we feel not only like that could be a viable suggestion, but we have folks on the front line that feel like maybe they should have been taking better care of themselves. They'll take that to heart and it'll just make them feel even worse about their effectiveness as a worker. Oh, I think that's such good intent usually by a leader. There's usually a good intent there, but that is an indicator in my mind that the leaders need some better skills training to demonstrate their own empathy compassion for the experience of the healthcare workers who are in that situation, who are in that place of burnout and equipping those leaders with the skill sets to have those conversations more effectively is probably just as important so that those conversations don't keep happening. Yeah, absolutely. Leadership is really key. Some things that I've seen work really well have been creating time and space for Healthcare workers to have kind of some unstructured time with their peers with without an agenda. And this would be just to make connections with each other because often they're working parallel to one another and don't have time to actually connect on a human level with each other. And then it gives them also the opportunity to vent a little bit to each other or to realize that they're not alone in how they feel. Maybe at some point one will be vulnerable and say, I'm just having a really hard time at home. And then someone else will say, oh my gosh, me too. And we know the value of conversations like that when people can just connect. 
and not feel like they're the only one or that they're alone. Creating opportunities for people to just come together in a safe space and connect. Another thing that I've seen be effective is using some sort of crisis intervention or psychological first aid to help healthcare workers process through a traumatic event that they just experienced. And for example, if you are a hospital critical care worker, emergency departments, it's very common for really scary emergency situations to happen. And sometimes the outcomes are good and sometimes they're not so good, regardless of how well you did your job. And that affects you on a personal level. And if there's not a timeout to acknowledge and honor whatever you're feeling, and if the expectation by management or leadership is to just, again, suck it up and keep going, like on to the next person, that's causing emotional damage. Like that's moral distress in and of itself. I didn't even have time to grieve the situation and already I'm on to the next person. And so leadership and the organization creates a structure where after something like that happens, there's an opportunity to take a little break and say, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Let's let it out. Here's some resources for you. Here's employee assistance program. We can do an emotional debrief. Here's the signs and symptoms of an acute stress reaction. This is what you can tell your family to expect. You can go home tonight and maybe the message to your family is, I had a really hard day and I might not be myself, but I'm not mad at any of you. I just am feeling a little bit sad and I'll be better soon, but I just wanted to let you know that can be really important. If you don't manage their expectations, you can end up going home to just this chaos. And then someone's like, what's wrong? You know, what's wrong, mom? Are you mad at me? Why are you grumpy? And then it just makes things 10 times worse after a hard day already. So there's a lot of things that leadership can do structurally to put in place so that we are taking better care of each other. But it does require time and energy and some resources. I love that last suggestion because that's something that I think can change the whole family dynamic when you're really clear with your family on what's happening, what's going on. And there are days that I'm in tears, something's happened. And if I can just tell my kids, I had a bad day, I had conflict with somebody or something didn't go my way. And what's great about that is we're teaching our children that we can be human and that those emotions are okay to express and experience. And so they actually get better at identifying them when we're willing to share them. So I think that's a really powerful suggestion for anyone in any situation, but certainly when you're in that type of extreme stress, a serious type of situation to be able to communicate that can be really powerful. Yeah, I love that too, because we're also teaching them that they're not responsible for my emotions because I'm coming in and I'm sharing what's happening and I'm being vulnerable and showing them that I am experiencing, but I'm also telling them, and I'm not mad at you. This isn't your fault. This is something, you know what I mean? And so I also, I also got to, and then good old recognition, letting people know how valued they are and recognizing the amazing work and doing that from a leadership level, but also really encouraging peer-to-peer 
type recognition and even facilitating a process where there can be a patient or customer or client recognition to uh, your employees. All of those things really add up. And it's amazing how one letter from a patient that mentions your name in it can just keep you going for another couple months. And so I didn't want to not mention the importance of appreciation and recognition. So important. And even more important when there's so often not very much recognition. You don't hit sales goals in nursing. You don't achieve a big successful project. You are doing in, in healthcare support in general, a series of tasks, a series of support every day in and day out. And it's not the same sense of achievement that you get in other types of roles and positions. And so I think it's actually even more important to your point to be providing that recognition and that appreciation because it is such a critical position and because we need healthcare workers so desperately, clearly, given the gap and the deficit that we're going to experience if we can't attract more people to fill those roles, to take those types of positions and equip them with the skill sets that are necessary to be successful in them, it sounds like. Adrienne, I have just loved this conversation with you. I want to give you a chance. I think you and I could go on and on, but I want to give you a chance to share any final comments or thoughts that you have with our audience around any of the topics we've talked about, anything you'd like them to just take away from this conversation, something that maybe is important to you and important that more people would know or be aware of. Yeah. Gosh, I think that in summary, just the acknowledgement that burnout is multifactorial, not just the responsibility. When we're talking about workplace burnout, it's not just the responsibility of that employee, but there's a lot that we can do as leaders and as an organization to ease that suffering, whether it's leadership education, recognition and appreciation or developing structures or programs that allow our employees to feel safe in talking about how they're feeling and also spend time with each other. So I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Jessica. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for coming on and we'll have to have you back. We'll have to see over time if progress is made and how organizations and and different healthcare providers are responding to this tremendous challenge that is going to impact all of us because we all need healthcare. I needed those healthcare providers when I was in the hospital. So it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to need it at some point. And so this is an issue, an everybody issue. It's an important topic and it's an important area of focus that we need to be paying attention to. And like you mentioned, I couldn't agree more We always talk about the three elements of burnout. One is our own limiting beliefs, our own unproductive beliefs that are keeping us in a cycle of burnout. They are our environments, our workplace systems and structures, our cultures that are creating the space for that burnout to occur. And then they are the crises, the serious stressors and challenges that happen in our lives that add that excess stress that tips it over the balance. And since we can't do anything about the crises that happened, the people that get Mm -hmm. sick, the global pandemics, we can't stop those things. 
we have to pay attention to the things that we can do something about. And so for organizations and workplaces and healthcare organizations, looking at those cultures, those systems, those structures, those practices, and making those changes you talked about to create a different outcome, to create a better result, and to reduce the level of burnout that is existing today in the healthcare space. So thank you so much, Adrienne, for coming on. We're so grateful to have you with us. And to our listeners, as always, I just want to remind you to always keep evolving. Have a wonderful day.